For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So yeah, we've been working through the book of Daniel, and you know, we've been talking mostly about the way that Daniel and his friends are committed to this idea of being a light in the midst of the darkness, that they are engaging, they are captive to a hostile culture that had defeated Israel militarily, hauled them off as captors, intended to brainwash them and then send them back as sort of puppet rulers for the nation of Babylon, and that they have been instructed through the prophets of the Lord, predominantly Jeremiah, to know, to go and invest themselves, to pray and to be a blessing to the people of Babylon. And we've talked about that's our part, you know, that what God wants for them is the same as what God wants for us, that we live in a culture where a lot of people don't know God, they don't know what the Bible actually says, and our job is to serve and love and share and pray and to be ambassadors for him in the midst of a culture that doesn't know him. Last week, in chapter 4, we talked about how the king of Babylon himself had found saving faith, that this guy is a true maniac you know, who really believes that he is, the, the, he is all-powerful, that he sees himself as a god. And uh, he is one of the most powerful human rulers who ever lived. One of the most successful conquerors uh, of all time. King Nebuchadnezzar found saving faith. He had seen a lot of evidence. He had seen Daniel and his friends and the way they lived their lives. He had seen that they were willing to put their lives on the line and even disobey him rather than disobey God. And he had seen God rescue them through miraculous circumstances, communicate through them prophecy and interpretation of dreams, which had uh, a really personal impact on him. And then he had been warned that his pride was going to lead to madness, and he rejected it and went through seven years of madness that he came out of on the other end acknowledging that there is something greater than himself, that God is actually sovereign, that he plays a role that has been given to him by God as a ruler. But all of his greatness and all of his authority and all the wonderful things about him were just established by God who is all-powerful and had shared those things with him. And we read his own personal testimony in chapter 4 of that journey. He had turned to God. So you can imagine that uh, a ruler like this who would have such a radical life-changing experience that would have had a major impact on the people of Babylon. Uh, and Neb continued to rule for many years. He enjoyed an incredible 40-plus year rule over this vast and wealthy kingdom. He died in around 562 BC at about 83 years old. Didn't seem like he was going to be the kind of guy that would die an old man in his bed, but uh, he did. His life seems to have legitimately taken on some change. And then, as happens in history, more often than not, a, a, an incredibly charismatic and mighty and successful ruler dies, and there's a lot of squabbling over who's next, right? And so his kids squabble over it, and there's about eight years of you know, this guy becomes king, it's one of his sons, and then somebody kills him. And, you know, there's a lot of kind of political turmoil in Babylon. Until about 556 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law, Nabonidus, emerges as the new emperor. And uh, 
Nabonidus is a kind of interesting character. Now, you have to understand that, you know, we're dealing with events that happened over 2,500 years ago. And so there is archaeological evidence. We know that of all about Nebuchadnezzar, the things we've said here, you know, are known as part of the historical record. There's archaeology that backs these things up. We know that Nabonidus was a real guy. He left uh, inscriptions. Um, He was known, for example, this is very interesting to me, he was a virtual monotheist. Now, see, the Babylonian cult had a, a, a pantheon of many different gods, but Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law was uh, really into one Babylonian god in particular, whose name, ironically, is Sin. <laughs> had nothing to do with the Bible's idea of sin. Uh, who was the father of the gods, according to Babylonian tradition. Now, that might sound like that would be okay with them, but see... Uh, when you believe, he was actually not a monotheist, he's what we call a henotheist, which means he believes in many gods, but there was one god in particular that he worships and thinks is better than all the other gods, which is a lot how Nebuchadnezzar talks about Daniel's god when he talks about the god of gods and the the all-powerful god. That was interesting. And now here his son-in-law is showing special favor to one of the gods, and Marduk, was known to be like the the god of the city of Babylon. That was the one that the emperor was supposed to be tightest with. But instead, Nabonidus seems to have a very different take on the whole religious scene of Babylon. And he's hated for it. The Chaldeans, the people, uh, the the religious rulers, the the priests of Marduk, of the city, really hate this guy. Uh, And they... uh, They don't want to see his reign continue because he seems to be focused on one God more than any other God. Now, I'm not saying that he became a believer in the God of the Bible. I don't know. But this is just extra-biblical history records these interesting tidbits about this family. Another interesting thing about Nabonidus is he seemed more interested in archaeology than ruling. A lot of people consider him to be the first archaeologist. Uh, He was going around and finding kind of, you know, even in this time in history, Babylon had been a city for many, many, many hundreds of years. And so he was really interested in in the ruins and rebuilding structures. And uh, he was in a lot of ways more interested in that than ruling Babylon. In fact, at one point, he went on a seven to 10-year excursion to this place called Tema. And so we find these critiques of him, like he, he, didn't, he didn't like the gods that we liked, and he wasn't around, and he was always running around doing this stuff. He wasn't ruling in the city. But he was known as the last king of Babylon before the Medians and the Persians came in. Nabonidus, we know from reliable archaeological sources, was defeated by Cyrus in the Battle of Opus, and he was, Nabonidus was, the last king of the Babylonian Empire. Okay? So we get to Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, and we read, Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Now, why is that important? What's, what's the thing that we have to look at here is, who is Belshazzar? Right? If you read ahead in this story, you realize this is the story. It is this very night in which this story takes place that Babylon falls to Cyrus. So how is it that this guy Belshazzar is king 
and not Nabonidus. History records Nabonidus is the last king of Babylon. And if you look at the extra biblical sources, the historical sources, okay, Herodotus, Herodotus was writing his history of the Babylonians and the Assyrians only about 60, 70 years after the fall of Babylon. So here's a Greek historian who's within one generation of these events actually happening, okay? Barassus, Abadinus, Ptolemy, Josephus, Theodoret, all these historians, all, you know, Babylon was a big deal and ancient man was fascinated. To them, that was their ancient history. And they're writing about these guys and they all agree. Nabonidus, the last king of Babylon, and no mention of Belshazzar anywhere. For thousands of years, for 2,000 years, there was no one, no one knew who Belshazzar was. Even 100 years after the events that are being talked about here, no one knew who Belshazzar was. They all agree. Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law, Nabonidus, was the last king of Babylon. Now, that's a problem, Right? That's important. Why is it important? Because we need to know whether the Bible is history or whether the Bible is myth. Why? Well, because it makes claims. It claims that it is history. And if it lies to us, then we can't trust it. And we might say, well, that's okay. You know, everybody makes mistakes. But the Bible makes claims to be the word of God that you should set and orient your entire life and your priorities according to the claims of this book. And if it is not from God, then you could be living your entire life for the wrong reasons. It's a pretty good reason to say we need to be critical thinkers and we need to know whether we can trust the Bible or not. Was Daniel real or was he, as many liberal scholars have commented over the years, he's like, you know, Israel's Paul Bunyan. He's like this legendary figure and these stories of the fiery furnace and all this stuff. You know, it's, it's the stuff of legend. Daniel never existed. He never wrote this book. This is not history. This is myth. Daniel claims to be written by Daniel, and that's actually very important. Why? Because as we move forward from this point on in this book, after chapter 5, we're getting into some of the incredible prophecies that Daniel gave that are incredibly accurate. And in fact, they're so accurate that scholars for hundreds of years have said there's no way this book is written when it claims to be written. It has to be written after the fact. And if Daniel wasn't written by someone in the 600 BCs who was a part of the Babylonian court, they might get things wrong, like who was king at the end. But if Daniel was really there and he really wrote this book, then he would know, wouldn't he? So it becomes very, very important. It's a part of whether or not we are able to believe the prophecies of chapter 7 through 12, whether they were written before they happen or whether they were written after they happen. And you say, well, why don't we just get the oldest copies of the book of Daniel? Well, we, we have those. They date to about 200 BC. They're in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Problem is, 200 BC is about 400 years after all the things have happened, or at least after the book of Daniel claims to be given. So liberal scholars will say, Daniel had to be written in 200 BC. Why? Because that's the oldest copies that we actually have, so they can't go any later than that. 
And it's after most of the incredible prophecies that are in the book of Daniel. So they can argue that it was written after the fact. And the reason they argue it was written after the fact is because it's so accurate. You see the problem? And so if you have something like this where you have a major historical contradiction, like Daniel doesn't know who the last king of Babylon is, it's pretty clear Daniel wasn't written by Daniel. It's pretty clear that we have a major problem. And if he gets details like that wrong, then he clearly wasn't part of the court. He can't be trusted. This is myth, and we should not be duped. We should not be impressed with the prophecy that we read as we move forward because clearly it was written after the fact. And for hundreds of years, for actually 2,000 years, the Bible said Belshazzar was there at the very end and all of this reliable history that was dated back to a much, to a very, very uh, close time period, Herodotus writing 70 years after these events, was saying the last king of Babylon was Nabonidus. And so this has been used historically to erode the confidence that we should have in these historical claims. And it's super important because if we can't trust the Bible and the historical details that we can verify, right? If we find that it's lying, we find that we can't trust what it says in things that can be verified, how can we trust it in things that can't be verified or that are far more difficult, the promises of God? That God loves you and will never forsake you. How do you verify that? And how do you believe that if it lies in other places? So we begin to see the importance of this kind of question. So let's go back to the party. Belshazzar, whoever he is, having a party. And it says, he tasted the wine and he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem. Okay, number of things here. One, he says, Nebuchadnezzar is Belshazzar's father. Well, again, we have a fairly good, fairly clear historical record. We know who Nebuchadnezzar's kids were, right? And there's no record of a Belshazzar as one of Nebuchadnezzar's children. He had a, ta- a daughter, Nitocris, uh, Amel Marduk, meaning man of Marduk, probably named before he came to know the God of the Bible, right? Where's Belshazzar? Here he's saying this is a son of Nebuchadnezzar, and yet the historical record is empty of any son of Nebuchadnezzar named Belshazzar. And... He's going to the tent. He's going, and he's, remember, Nebuchadnezzar uh, besieged Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and carried off the implements from inside the temple of God. And this guy, Belshazzar, wants to have a party, and he wants to bring the gold implements from God's temple to have a giant party with his friends. And you got to wonder, given what Nebuchadnezzar had learned, about respecting the Most High. Is this the wisest choice? Where's the connection here? You're going to throw a kegger with God's cups, right? That's not a good idea. A complete and total disrespect of who God is. So then they brought out the gold vessels and they had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, his concubines, he's got everybody coming in. It says uh, over a thousand people and it's like this huge 
Drinking is a huge emphasis here. They drank the wine. They praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Let's not just, you know, throw a wild party and drink, but let's use the implements of God's temple to toast to false idols. You know, Nebuchadnezzar went mad for seven years because God wanted to make a point. All of a sudden, it says, the fingers of a man's hand emerged, just showed up out of nowhere, a hand, and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing, and then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began to knock together. What? Now, the thing I want to point out here is, if this is something written secondhand by somebody 400 years after the event, look at the detail, okay? He says, the hand appeared writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, right? Does that sound like somebody making up a story? Or does that sound like somebody who's like got spatial understanding of the palace and what was going on, Right? The king saw the back of the hand that did the writing, and the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him. His hip joints went slack, and his knees started knocking together, right? I mean, there's a detail here that if you're a liar, if you're writing 400 years later, you're good, right? Now, we can't base historical claims or historical evidence. People do lie like that. We see that. But it's important to notice, like, this claims to be an eyewitness account, And yet we have this kind of detail here being described. That's very interesting. We should take note of that. The king called aloud to bring the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners. And the king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can explain and read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his presumably neck. Right? And all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription and make known its interpretation. So we have another one of these events, right? Where this has happened and and the writing was on the wall and all of this strangeness. And the writing is there, but they can't tell what it says. It's in some language they don't understand. And you you can imagine if this happened, you would like, I want to know what that says. Like that becomes very important. A hand appeared out of nowhere and started writing something on the wall it seems like the message would be important. So they bring in the wise men. It's the typical show that we've seen. They come in and they're like, I have no idea. I don't read whatever that is. And they're like, oh man, we gotta gotta know. We gotta bring somebody in. You know, we we will richly reward anyone who can interpret this for us. And so King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler and his nobles were perplexed. And then the queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. Now, that's interesting. He said that earlier that Belshazzar would be in there and he was with his wives and his nobles and his concubines. It was a big party. And now the queen shows up. So this is either the queen who was like way too cool or maybe even too spiritual to party like this with God's golden cups, or this could be the queen mother, right? This is somebody, though, who has some, some history with spiritual things in Babylon uh, because she enters into the room. She hears, you know, Belshazzar is throwing a fit, and she speaks, and she says, O king, live forever. 
Don't let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. This was because an extraordinary spirit of knowledge and insight and interpretation of dreams explained of enigmas and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Now, that's interesting because our timeline, all of a sudden, Daniel was a young man in chapter 4, right? And the books of the Bible like this are not always chronological. It seems, and it's clear when we look at it, we've actually fast-forwarded at least 25 years because Nebuchadnezzar's been dead for 25 years. It's probably been even longer, Right? Last, we were used to thinking of Daniel as a, as, a, as a very young man in a very precarious situation. But now, you know, he's been the wise man to the king of Babylon, and there's been six or seven different kings of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar's 25 years dead, and the memory of him and the importance of his role has probably faded some. But the queen comes in, and she's like, you know, there's a guy who works for us. This old man, Daniel. And he used to help Nebuchadnezzar like this all the time. He was the go-to guy. When all else failed, you could bring in Daniel. And he would be able to come in because he had this extraordinary, incredible ability from God. And it turns out he's still alive and he's still in the business. So they go and they hunt down Daniel and they're like, hey, we got this crazy thing that's happened. And Daniel's like, all right. And Belshazzar, Daniel comes in and Belshazzar's all, you know, oh, you know, He's going to make the same kind of thing. I'll give you all these gifts. I'll shower you. If you are able, he says in 16, to read the inscription and make his interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. This is a big give, right? You're going to be incredibly powerful if, if, if only you can tell us what this writing means. And it says, Daniel answered, it said, keep your gifts to yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him, which is kind of, that's kind of a strange response, really, you know? I mean, when Daniel was a young man, there he was before, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, he's like, oh, great king, please, you know, let it not be true. And, you know, he's doing all these different things. And now, you know, he's a little bit older, he's a little bit further along, and he's like, look, sonny boy, I've been here many times before. You can keep your kingship, your third and the ruler. You know, uh, I'll be happy to tell you the interpretation. And he's probably looking at, you know, the cups of his God and his people and the way that they're being used. And he's like, sure, I'll tell you what it means. Those are God cups you're using. I'll be happy to relay the message. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Again, we see that. Because of the grandeur which was bestowed on him, all the peoples of all the nations and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared. Uh, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he brought low. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from the royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He's talking about what we studied last week, right? 
He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beasts and his dwelling place was that, that of wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the most high God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, even though you knew all of this. So we don't know who Belshazzar is. They keep saying he's the son of Nebuchadnezzar. But Belshazzar, whoever he is, he is familiar with the entire narrative, right? Daniel's like, you know what happened with Neb. And here you are throwing a party with the implements of the God of the Bible, toasting to the false gods of Babylon. And you're surprised something like this happens? You have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven and they have brought you the vessels of his house before you and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see and do not hear and do not understand. You have worshiped these false gods but the God in whose hand is your life, your breath, and all your ways you have not glorified. So the hand was sent from him, and this inscription, now this is the inscription that was written out. Like, oh. When you put it that way, it does seem quite bad, doesn't it? <laughs> mene, mene, tekel, upharsin. This is the message of God. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and to the Persians. You have been weighed and tested and found wanting and your rule is over. That's the message. Because you've forgotten the great message that God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar. And in 29, Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold. I just imagine this old, imagine this old man just like, get away from me. You know, and they're bringing in the, all this stuff and issued a proclamation concerning him. He now has a third ruler in the kingdom of Babylon. And that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. Interesting. There's some important historical details that shed some great clarity on the scene that we're seeing here. This party, one question would be, what is this party? What is it about, right? Belshazzar decides to throw a big party. Why? The answer is, is because Babylon was done for, okay? Babylon, this is the very end. This is the last night of the Babylonian empire, and Belshazzar is in authority as king at the very end. You see, Cyrus, the king of the Medians and the Persians, defeated Babylon militarily at the Battle of Opus, but had not yet actually taken the city of Babylon. That would happen a week later. But the Babylon army was completely wiped out at the Battle of Opus. So they're in this city, this great city of Babylon, and they have these high walls, and Cyrus and his army are coming, right? And they have no army to defend themselves. So they know that they are going down, and what do they decide? 
Let's throw a big party. Let's just burn out, right? And many in the city hated Nabonidus because of his religious policies. And we're waiting, the, the history, historical record tells us that there were many within the city of, of, of Babylon who couldn't wait for Cyrus to come in and take over. Why? Because he worshiped Marduk. And so they were really in a bad place where there were many people within their own culture that couldn't wait. And Belshazzar, knowing this, decided to go down, and he invites in his wives, his concubines, and his nobles. There's nothing he can do, and let's just get drunk. And he decides to get drunk with the temple goblets. And the question is, why? Why, why this act of disrespect to the God of the Bible? Such a clear, intentional affront to that God. Why would he do that? And it's interesting because the reason, I think, is very clear when we remember the prophecy that Daniel had given to Nebuchadnezzar and the statue. Remember the statue with the gold head and the silver, and it showed the progression of the kingdoms? He had given that probably 30 to 40 years before this event, God had told King Nebuchadnezzar that your kingdom will be great, you will rule long and you will be mighty, but then your kingdom will come to an end. And he says specifically, the next kingdom that will rise up after you will be the Medians and the Persians. And guess who just lost the battle of Opus, had their army wiped out, and whose army is knocking at the door of Babylon the Medes and the Persians. And so Belshazzar, knowing this, has two options. He can bow on his knees and say, God, you knew, you told us, this is exactly what you said. Or he can try to rebel, throw off the wisdom of God, maybe turn and cast his hope on his false gods because the God of Daniel, the God of the Bible, is not going to help him. He's already told him the Medes and the Persians are going to take over. But maybe Marduk will help. And so you can see why, the mentality here of exactly why they would do this, why they would shake their fist at God and turn to their false gods and even use the implements of the temple of God to kind of cry out in defiance against God and against his, prof and against his prophecy. They knew their days were numbered. Mene, mene, tekel, ufarsin. Your days are numbered. You have been weighed and found wanting, and the Persians are coming, is the message. And so they freak out when they see the hand, but... The hand is already telling them what they already know, but now it's just clear. The God of the Bible is real, and they are helpless to do anything about this situation. And here's Daniel, now an old man, reminding Belshazzar of the hard lessons of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was just like you, but when the rubber hit the road and his pride was finally challenged, he broke and he humbled himself before the Lord. He knew that it was God who gives authority to rule. And so his reign was extended and his life was extended and he flourished because he understood that there was something greater than himself. But you, when confronted with that same exact reality, shook your fist at God. You gave him the finger 
and how you want to know why your life and your rule is coming to an end? Because God in His sovereignty gives these things, and God in His sovereignty can take these things away. You could have humbled yourself, Belshazzar, and maybe things would be different, but you didn't. And so the writing on the wall, that whole phrase, the writing is on the wall, comes from this passage and this story. It means your days are numbered. Are these stories true? It's kinda, it kind of sounds like Babe the Blue Ox and old Paul Bunyan and his axe. You know, you're kind of like, you know, the supernatural components here kind of make you. I mean, we have not seen, I have never seen anything like writing on a wall, magic hand appearing and writing something. And so that brings us back to the historical reliability of the text, doesn't it? Like we said, the Persian record exists and states that Nabonidus, he was the last king of Babylon. He was defeated by Cyrus. That is attested to in so many different historical documents. There's a Babylonian chronicle and a cylinder of Cyrus that both describe the battle of Opus and they explain that the city of Babylon was taken one week later after the battle of Opus and there was no conflict. There was no siege of the city. The doors were flown wide open. What we see though and what we learn from this battle of Opus, September, we know exactly when it happened, September of 539 BC, Nabonidus led the army of Babylon out to meet the Medians and the Persians. Nabonidus, knowing what? That the Medians and the Persians were going to be the next kingdom in line. Cyrus defeated Nabonidus, but Nabonidus, in defeat, survived and fled into the desert. So Babylon fell, but it, did, it was a week after the battle of Opus. Okay, follow me here because this gets real important. A week after the battle of Opus, Nabonidus goes in hiding, and so the city of Babylon is sitting there for one week without an army, but they are still the nation of Babylon. Who was in charge during that week? That's the question. Who's in the city? Well, this is one of the cylinders that I just told you about. This is called the Cylinder of Nabonidus. Uh, it's in the British Museum of History. I plan on going there and seeing it one day. Personally, I have not, but uh, I take their website's word for it that it exists at this point, right? And it says on their website, this is just quotes from the, the website, in 1854, the British consul at Basra named J.E. Taylor began an excavation of the Ziggurat area, and Taylor found four clay cylinders, one at each corner of a ziggurat, which identified the site as Ur. Now, what's important about this was, this is called the Nabonidus Cylinder, and Nabonidus was a guy who liked to go and rebuild stuff. And here's a temple, and they found four of these cylinders, and we have, we have dozens of these cylinders from the time of Babylon. This is how they would record their history, and they would, you know, it would be a thing where you, it would be on a stick, and you could turn it, and you could read the history, right? And they found this one, and it says that these cylinders were written for the Babylonian king Nabonidus, who reigned from about 555 BC to 350, for 539 BC. And the text on these cylinders revealed that the ziggurat had been rebuilt by Nabonidus. Here is the direct translation from, the, from one of the cylinders. 
Let there the temple's foundations be established as the heavens. As for me, Nabonidus, king of Babylon, save me from my sin against your great divinity and give me life until distant days. And as for Belshazzar, my firstborn son, my own child, let the fear of your great divinity be in his heart. And may he commit no sin and may he enjoy happiness in life. <sighs> oh, oh my God. Belshazzar, 1854. That means from Herodotus, 450 BC to 1854, there was no historical record of a guy named Belshazzar anywhere except in Daniel. And everyone thought, there is no Belshazzar. It doesn't exist. This is myth. This is, you know, this is Babe and his blue ox. This is Paul Bunyan. This is, none of this is true. And all of a sudden we discover Belshazzar is real. He is the son of Nabonidus, who we definitely know and who the record shows was the last king of Babylon. And he's got a pride issue. He's worried, what? That his son is prideful before God. No one doubts the existence of Belshazzar. He's a part of the record now, right? But for 2,000 years plus, it was like, this is proof, this shows, you know, that, that Daniel didn't know what he was talking about. In fact, he was real. It turns out Nabonidus, who was Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law, had a son named Belshazzar. Belshazzar would rule often because Nabonidus would often go away on these excursions and he would leave his son in charge to rule the kingdom in his place. We know that Nabonidus was hiding for the week after the battle of Opus and Belshazzar was left to defend the city without an army. And here we have eyewitness testimony of what happened in the throne room the last night before Babylon fell. He threw a giant kegger with God's dishes. That's what happened. It turns out Daniel accurately records an incredible detail that fit perfectly with what we now know of, what the, of the historical record. Let's go back and look. Right? We said Belshazzar the king. Well, Nabonidus was the last king. Yeah, but... Belshazzar was in charge of Babylon. He was the heir. And Abinidus was gone. He was in hiding and he was put in charge. He was the active ruler of the city whenever his father was gone. And we know that his father was in hiding. Look at this. He says uh, that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, it's saying that Nebuchadnezzar is Belshazzar's father. Well, it turns out he was actually his grandfather, Right? And that is a completely acceptable use when you look at the way that the Babylonians talk about uh, descendancy. To say that someone is your father when they're actually your grandfather or your great-great-grandfather or your great-great-grandfather is normal nomenclature of not only the Babylonian culture, but many cultures. You know, it's like when an Israelite says, Abraham is my father. That was a normal way of talking about lineage even to this day, it's sometimes used that way, where descendants are referred to as sons. 
what about this? Isn't it interesting? Why did Belshazzar, in his offer to David, why did he offer him to be the third ruler in the kingdom? Because Belshazzar was second. Nabonidus was first. And the only thing that he could offer him was to be third. Doesn't, if you think about that, right? If you go back and you just think, you take all this out, it's like, isn't it kind of weird that he offers third? Like, why offer third and not offer second? Until you put it in the historical context of what we know. Details that could not be faked. There's no way, right? They didn't even know at the time of Herodotus, seven 70 years later that Belshazzar was around or that he had a significant role. So there's no way that anyone could have faked that the best offer that Daniel could have had was that he would have been third in the kingdom. But it makes perfect sense when now that we have a clearer picture of the historical record of what happened there. Amazing. Isn't that incredible? Remember Daniel's response? Nah, keep it. Keep your gifts for yourself and your reward to someone else. Why? Look, Cyrus is at the door, man. You're going to offer me third in the kingdom? This is, the, this is like the burnout party, right? What's the point, sonny boy? Give it to someone else. I'll be happy to give you the interpretation. It makes perfect sense. That is incredible. What we thought was historically inaccurate turns out to be far more accurate than any other historical document in the last 2,500 years that has explained what happened at the fall of Babylon. An eyewitness detailed testimony from the courtroom itself of the last hurrah of the Babylonian empire. And that night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was slain. The historical record shows that someone, maybe it was the Chaldean priests, the worshipers of Marduk, could have been a lot of different people, rather than face a siege against Cyrus that they knew that they would eventually lose, they threw open the doors, they said, come on in, and the army came in and took over the city, Babylon was done, and Belshazzar was killed. Thus, we went from Babylon to Media Persia. Daniel was real. He was there. He knew things. He spoke about things. He recorded things. The Bible is real. This is history of the highest quality. And the prophecies that we are going to study together over the next several weeks are eyewitness testimonies recorded years before they came true. And they are incredible evidence of the faithfulness of the Bible and the reality of the God of the Bible who speaks. Nebuchadnezzar allowed himself to be humbled by the evidence. It took a lot, right? I mean, he, he fought. He was a prideful man, and he had a lot of problems. But when the evidence mounted up, there was a certain point where he broke, Right? His grandson did not. And that really leaves a great spot for us to just consider where we're at. 
How much evidence do we need in order to decide this is trustworthy and this is meaningful? And maybe I should think about how my life leads into the claims that are being made here. We too should be like Nebuchadnezzar and not like Belshazzar and say, enough is enough. I have seen enough evidence that at least, at the very least, this deserves my time and my study because I want to know whether or not these things are true. John 6, 28, Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may see the work, we may work the works of God? And Jesus said, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. That's what God wants from us, is to believe in Jesus Christ, to put down our rebellion, to put down our pride, and to open our hearts up to all the incredible truth that God is showing us, the evidence that he's giving us in his word, and as the thread of human history runs through in our own hearts and in the relationships of the people who are authentic, believing Christians, where we can see how God has changed their lives. There's so much evidence there. And it's time, it's time to bend the knee to the creator God of the universe and invite Jesus Christ into our lives. And to stop shaking our fists at the God who made us, at the God who loves us, and the God who died for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, in two weeks... We're going to be off. I'm going to be off next week. There'll be a sub here. But in two weeks, we're going to do Daniel chapter 7 and 8. And we're going to spend the, the following two or three weeks really getting into this prophecy that I keep talking about so that you can judge it for yourselves. But that's what we have from Daniel chapter 5. God, you are the God of history. There's so many things where we can learn facts. We can learn the reality of of what's happened in the human condition back thousands of years. I think about the people that have come to faith trying to disprove the history of of your scriptures. I think about the encouragement that we find again and again. And there are still things. We know that there are still questions, and there are places where the archaeological record disagrees like this one used to. But we thank you, God, that you have again and again and again, as more evidence has, has surfaced, proven that you are real, that you speak, and that we can trust that. And that also means that we can trust in Jesus Christ. We just ask, God, that you'll help to give us confidence, give us faith in sharing with those who don't know you. And for anyone here this morning that doesn't, God, we just pray that they will soften their hearts and they will, they will have an exchange with you where they will open their heart and let you speak to them in a powerful way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.